John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his, his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Thank you, Angeline. And I encourage you to leave your Bible open to John chapter 3. We're going to be going uh, through this scripture. But I entitled this sermon, It's Not About You. <laughs> not about me. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. That's why in heaven they're all around the throne of God worshiping Jesus. They're not worshiping you. And they're not worshiping me. About 16 years ago, there was a book that was written uh, in the Christian community, uh, pretty popular, called The Purpose Driven Life, uh, Pastor Rick Warren. And the very first paragraph of that book, it went like this. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. You know, it's not about us. And we often ask, you know, what do I want to be or what should I do with my life or what are my goals and my ambitions and my dreams for the future? Well, it's not about us. It's about Christ and what God wants for us. In our scripture in John 3 today, Jesus uh, has just finished talking to Nicodemus, you know, Nick at night. <laughs> and the scene kind of shifts to a Judean hillside or countryside where Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. Uh, we got to understand John 4, 2 says that Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. But verse 22, it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. I mean, this is part of the way Jesus was gathering a following, and they signified their repentance. They signified their faith in baptism. Now, I want to share with you a few observations that I gleaned from John chapter 3, verses 22 to 31 uh, today. Uh, the first observation I would just call comparison and competition. You know, churches don't do that, do they? 
We don't compare and, you know, my church is cooler than your church or my praise band is better than your praise band. And, and here in this passage, we've got two bands of baptizers. Look at verse 23. It brings in John the Baptist again and uh, gets us ready for the main point of this section, verses 23 and 24. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. So, you know, the situation here is set. <clears throat> Jesus' band of brothers is baptizing, and, and John's band of brothers is baptizing. We've got two bands, two bands of baptizers. Maybe a little competition going on here, maybe a little comparison going on here. But for some reason, this triggers a dispute over uh, purification between John's disciples and a certain Jewish man. Look at verse 25. It says, Now a discussion rose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So uh, the issue is purification, and what seems to have set up the dispute was the two uh, baptizing bands. Now some think this unnamed Jew was Nicodemus. I mean, he was a Pharisee, and those Pharisees, they're really concerned about this purification stuff, right? Two baptizing bands. Now that's all we're told. And the debate really is never described in this passage. In fact, when John's disciples come to John with the issue, it doesn't even sound like, like a purification issue. Look at verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So what's the dispute over purification? We can only guess. Maybe it went something like this. You know, a Jewish man says to John's disciples, look, you're baptizing lots of people. Kind of looks like a bath or some kind of purification. More and more people are leaving your movement, and they're going over to that other group, gathering around Jesus. So what's the deal with his baptism and your baptism? Does his work <laughs> and yours doesn't? Does his really make people pure and yours fails? Maybe the dispute over purification was something like that. It, doesn't seem to be the main issue in what follows later in the text here. It's never referred to again. It just seems to get things started and then disappear. But that may not be the case, and we'll see a little later on. What does appear in verses 27 to 30 is that John the Baptist takes the conversation in a direction that seems to have nothing to do with purification and everything to do with who Jesus is is as the bridegroom and who John is as the friend of the bridegroom and what's happening in their ministries as the bride leaves John and goes to the bridegroom and especially how John responds to all this you know deep down in his heart and now to figure out what's going on in this passage just pause with me and with me ask why John the writer of this gospel brings John the Baptist back into the picture again. I mean, he talked about John the Baptist in the first chapter. Remember, there are hundreds and hundreds of things that he could have told us about Jesus uh, that John is just leaving out. Remember in John chapter 21, verse 25, it says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So why? Right here, after... This Nick at night, this Nicodemus conversation, does John bring John the Baptist in again to say in verse 28, I'm not the Christ. 
And to say in verse 29, I'm not the bridegroom, but I'm only just a friend of the bridegroom. And to say in verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. I mean, we've heard this same theme before, right? In chapter 1, verse 8, he's not the light. Chapter 1, verse 20, he's not the Christ. Chapter 1, verse 21, he's not Elijah, and he's not the prophet. Chapter 1, verse 23, he's just a voice crying in the wilderness. And John 1, 27, he's not worthy even to un tie or unstrap Jesus' sandals and lots more. And John has humbled himself and has exalted Jesus Christ already. Why does the writer bring him in again right here to do this again, to humble himself and to exalt Jesus Christ, which leads maybe to observation number two. The attention is going to Jesus. It's all going to Jesus. And that gives John the Baptist joy. I mean, look at verse 25, and it emphasizes John the Baptist's joy. It says, the friend, uh, that's John, of the bridegroom, that's Jesus, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I mean, those are strong words. I mean, rejoices greatly, and this joy of mine is now complete. You got great joy, you've got complete joy, all owing to what? The bridegroom is getting all the attention. I got to go do a wedding in Dunn Villa today. I got to leave a little early, so Roger's going to close out the service. So I'm gonna, I have to be there at 1230. I'm going to rip out of here, go there, and then we're going to have a wedding out at the barn at like 530 tonight. But you know, at that wedding, all the cameras are going to be flashing in the direction of that couple. The rice is all going to be flying in that direction. The honeymoon is in that direction. Nobody glances back at that silent voice on the church steps. The voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the shepherd has replaced that voice that was crying out in the wilderness. And in a few months, that sword of Herod will absolutely silence John's voice. And John's response to this, his response to this decreasing, his response to this diminishing, this great joy of mine is now complete. (laughs) All the attention is going to Jesus. So is Jesus an egomaniac? A lot of people uh, sometimes think so. I mean, he wants all the attention. Jesus wants all the attention. I heard an interview with an author who quoted Jesus in Matthew 10, 37 and 38, and asked in his book, Who is the egomaniac speaking these words? And what Jesus said uh, was this. Whoever leaves father and mother, or whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so here, Jesus, he's clearly demanding that we love him and honor him, and treasure him over everyone and everything else. Too many people today probably think that's sheer egomania, you know? And the people who respond that way find John the Baptist's reaction almost unbelievable or unintelligible. It's the opposite of their own. They see Jesus that demands that we love him more than anyone, that we follow him and trust him and enjoy him and be satisfied in him and delight in him and obey him more than anyone else. And their response is exactly the opposite of John the Baptist. 
They're kind of like Nicodemus, you know, like in John chapter 3, verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can this be? He was just flabbergasted. He was appalled. He didn't quite get it. I'm not saying he didn't eventually get it, if you read through the rest of John. But he didn't quite get it then. Listen, Calvary, when Jesus increases, joy increases. When Jesus increases, joy increases. John the Baptist says in verses 29 and 30, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. When Jesus becomes greater in the world and I become lesser in the world, my joy increases. And when this is the purpose and plan of Jesus himself, it's not egomania, it's pure love. It's also an argument for the deity of Christ because no human being would say the things that Jesus said, like I am the way and I am the truth and I am in the life and all the rest. So my answer to the question of why John the Baptist is brought in right here is to illustrate uh, a joyful response to radical things that Jesus had been saying to Nicodemus about himself and about this work of God in salvation. You could call it a joyful response to God's sovereign self-exaltation. It's God's plan. Let's take a closer look to see the connection more closely. Jesus had said in verse 21, look at verse 21 of chapter 3, that unlike the man who loves darkness and hates the light, the man who does the truth comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, one of the main marks, one of the main signs of being born again, of a born again person is that he loves for it to be clearly seen that his new birth and his new attitudes and his new actions and his new deeds and his new affections are carried out in God. So God gets the glory and not him. That is in the power of God. He loves to make it clear that his newness, it's a work of God. In other words, it's God's plan. It's a work of grace Sovereign grace. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Notice how the words of John the Baptist relate to this. John's disciples say at the end of verse 26 that John is losing his followers. You know, hey, John, they're all going to him. What will John's response be? Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. His answer is that the reason these people are leaving him and going to Jesus is that God is giving them to Jesus. You know, a person cannot receive one thing, one person, let alone a throng, unless it's given him from heaven. That is from God. And that's really the point of verse 21. The people who come to Jesus love to make it clear that God gave them to Jesus. That's exactly what we see in John you look at John 6, 37, it says, all that the Father gives will come to me. In other words, these words of John the Baptist are here because they just magnify and they underline and they confirm this sovereign work of God in people coming to Christ that Jesus spoke about in John 3, 21 and John 3, 8. You know, you wonder why they're turning away from me and going to Christ? John says, God is doing this. It's God. He's giving them to his son. And it will be clearly seen that their coming has been carried out 
in the power of God. And then verse 28, John tells his disciples that this is no surprise because God sent him for this very thing that people would turn away from him and to Christ. In verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. God sent him for this. This was God's plan. You gather a people and then give them up. Kind of like a star in the wilderness. And then just burn out like a meteorite. That's the plan. John knows it. And as it happens, his joy increases. What about the voice of the bridegroom? He totally surprises us with kind of this new image in verse 29. Look at that. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You know, why, why does he mention the bridegroom's voice? You know, why does the friend of the bridegroom, John the Baptist, rejoice greatly over the bridegroom's voice? Maybe only because his voice means that he's here. And the friend is just glad that he's here. But I kind of think it's more than that. John the Baptist described himself in John chapter 1, verse 23. He was that voice crying in the wilderness. His own voice has gathered a people, but now they're all leaving. And they're going to Jesus. Why? Because another voice is being heard. And it's a greater voice. And it's a stronger voice. The sheep hear his voice. Read John chapter 10. And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. The bridegroom has the bride because the bridegroom has a voice and the bride knows her husband's voice. And she leaves John and goes to him. And John rejoices in the voice of the bridegroom not just because the bridegroom is here but because the voice gathers the bride and it gathers her away from John, which is why the next words out of his mouth in verse 30 are, he must increase and I must decrease. It must be so. And in this, I rejoice. And then in verse 29, John focuses on the bridegroom's voice. This is a, a voice that's greater than his own voice. It's a, great, uh, it's a more superior voice than his own voice. This, this voice raises the dead. This voice is known by all the sheep, and they follow. This voice woos and wins the bride. She knows her husband and goes to him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and we know that. She would not go to another. This is God's doing. It's, it's part of the must of verse 30, and I'm going to get into the divine must in just a little bit. So John sums up God's work in verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. He must. This is the plan of God. This is the Son of God and, and the bridegroom. They, they, they will be exalted. They will be glorified. He will increase in the eyes of, of men. Or as verse 21 says, it will be clearly seen that the new works of all his people are his work. And contrary to, you know, human nature inside of us, this is why John the Baptist rejoices with a great joy and calls his joy finally full in verses 29 to 30. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. See, his response is joy. Therefore, this joy 
of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. This is why John, the writer of the gospel, records these words. Nicodemus was just confounded. Nicodemus was baffled by this, by this, this work of God, the sovereignty of God in a new birth. John saw it and he loved it. Nobody leaves me and goes to Jesus unless it's given him from heaven, verse 27. And there they go, away from me to Jesus. And so this is the work of heaven. This is the glorification of the Son of God, the shepherd, the bridegroom, the sovereign voice. He increases, I decrease, and this is the fullness of my joy. And this is what John, the gospel writer, wants us to see and to be because it's not about us. Let's look at this divine must. Another observation on your outline there. You know, the must. I like that. Of verse 30. Very, very important. This is God's must. Um, It's the must of a divine plan. In verse 27, God gives people to Jesus. They leave John the Baptist. They go to Jesus. This is God's doing, and this is part of the, the must of verse 30. And in verse 28, God sends John not to be the Christ, but for him and to point to him. So it's God's plan that John gather a people and then send them away to Jesus. This is part of the divine must of verse 30. Actually, there's three musts in John chapter 3. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, the first must is the must of the sinner. And in verse 7, it says, you must be born again. That's must number one. There's another must in John chapter three. It's the must of the Savior. In chapter three, verse 14, it says, he must be lifted up. And then the last must is the must of a servant. And that's what we're just covering today in in verse 30 of chapter three. I must decrease. And Jesus put it another way, didn't he? If anybody wants to follow me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So the last observation, it would be this uh, whole idea of purification that we started with. All of this got started in verse 25 because of a discussion over, you know, ceremonial washing or purification. Verse 25 says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Did, did Did John have nothing to say about this? I mean, did he just leave it behind? I mean, you judge. I mean, if John had referred to Jesus the way he did in In chapter 1, verse 29, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we would say, well, there it is. There's a connection right there with purification from sin. The Lamb is sacrificed for sinners and purifies them from their sin. But instead, in verse 29, John speaks of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. But is there a connection between these two in the mind of John? the gospel writer, and in the mind of John, the Baptist. I want you to listen to Revelation 21, verse 9. And you tell me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The bride is the wife of the Lamb. So the bridegroom is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So maybe it's not surprising to hear Paul the apostle speak of Christ as the bridegroom of the church and and specifically say that he sanctifies her and purifies her. 
You know, Ephesians 5, 25 and 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ, the bridegroom, loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so when John tells us that Jesus is the bridegroom and that he has the bride, he is for sure answering the question about purification. The bridegroom is the lamb. The bridegroom does give himself for his bride and purify her from all her sins. And so in the end, it's not so strange, is it, that John the Baptist would see this bridegroom increase and see all of his followers turn to the bridegroom and see himself decrease and say, in this my joy is complete. They're not turning to an egomaniac. Are you kidding? They're turning to God. They're turning to a savior, a lamb, a protector, a provider, a leader, like none they've ever known. How could they not love him more than anyone else? And as we move into 2018, you know, here we go. This is the last day of the year and first day is tomorrow. You know, may our theme, may our song be less of me, more of Christ, more more, more about Jesus. That should be our song. It's funny, the Apostle Paul, uh, remember his name was Saul? Saul means the great one. Paul means the little one. I think he got it. I think he got it when he came to Christ. May he increase. May we decrease. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace. Lord, I just thank you for the text of John 3, verses 22 to 30, and that John the Baptist's joy was to see you get glory, to see people go away from him and go to you, and I pray that that would be our same stance, Lord, that we would want you glory, and if we do anything good, it's only because of you. It's only because of what you're doing in us and through us. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to be on your team, to be your bride. Lord, I thank you that you love us and you're the great lover of our souls. And we just praise you, Jesus. And we want to love you more as we go into this year. May you increase in our lives and in our marriages and our families and in this church, in our city, in this nation. May you increase more about you, Jesus, and may we decrease. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Thank you, Lord, for a chance now to worship you in giving and to express our love to you by bringing you your tithe and our offering. Lord, may you be exalted and glorified during this time of worship, this time of giving. In Jesus' name, amen.